Please turn with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say there are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things say he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. 
I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In our study of the book of Revelation, we turn now from the more general introduction we found in chapter 1. It gave us a big picture of what this book is about to more specific and concrete things, and particularly this section of the letters to the seven churches. Now we recall from Revelation 1.11, the command is, What do you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia? Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, even though each that is the case, these are specific, we are yet reminded that every one of these sections ends with something like it is in Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because even though it is, first of all, specifically to that church, yet it is to the churches. And he who has an ear, let him hear. Well, that most definitely includes us. Now, as we go through these seven churches, I don't want to lose sight of what we've already established that this book is about. It's, it's not the strange and bizarre tales for the morbidly curious. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ for his people. It's about him. It tells us more about him. And so I want us to notice that each one of these sections for each one of these seven churches begins with a specific description of Christ. We have previously noted that as you flip through the pages of Scripture and you look at the prayers that are recorded for us of God's people, very often they are addressing God with a specific title or a specific description or a specific work that is relevant to their situation. If they're in great need, they speak to Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for them. If they are weak and in danger of being overrun by an enemy, they speak to one who is almighty and the Lord of hosts or something of, along those lines. And so if it is significant the way God, God's people themselves decide to speak of God and the titles and descriptions they use in a prayer, how much more significant is it when Christ himself reveals himself given a specific title and a specific description that is relevant to the situation of these churches? And so rather than the main idea being about the churches, I would have the main idea of this sermon and the other six to come, Lord willing, to be about the way the Lord reveals himself. And in this case, for the church of Ephesus, he is the one who walks with and upholds the church. It says in verse 1, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now again, 
At first glance, we wonder what are these stars in these lampstands, but we don't have to go too particularly far to find out what they are. The Lord would not have us to be in doubt. He's explained rather clearly, almost pedantically, in uh, Revelation 1.20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So then, it points to the fact that Christ is holding the church in his hand. And furthermore, that he walks in the midst of that church. He ever walks with his people. Now, somehow that is important. Somehow that is relevant to the situation. Somehow that is important for any church that finds itself in a situation that the church in Ephesus did. They ought to know that Christ is the one who upholds his church in his hand and who walks in their midst. But first, I suppose we ought to learn a little bit more about the church in Ephesus itself. Because unlike some of the churches we'll read about, which we really don't have anything more about them, we have a wealth of information about this church. The church in Ephesus was founded by Paul during his second missionary journey, around about um, year 52. And we can read all about it in the book of Acts. In Acts 18:19, he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That would seem to be the beginning of that church there. And by the next chapter, in Acts 19:20, we have this encouraging statement. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Wonderful thought, that even though there is opposition, yet the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Indeed, in the end, the enemies even had to stand up and take notice as in six verses later, it says, Moreover, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And we may know the response of the crowd to that, which is, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they start chanting this manically for hours. There was opposition, but the word of the Lord did grow mightily in that place even still. Well, Ephesus then also provided the occasion for Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He brought them, and this is what he said, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For this I know, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among you, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw the disciples away after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, with that preface, you would truly think that when we come to the situation with the church of Ephesus, it would have something to do with false teaching. But to our surprise, that's not the issue. Amazingly, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yes, the wolves came. We have evidence of that in the passage this morning. It's very clear that those wolves came, but they didn't listen to them in the end. 
It worked. It seems that they listened to all of the all the pleadings, at least for the moment. We know that it didn't remain that way forever. There's no not much of a church left in Ephesus today. But for the moment, over that next decade or decades, until we have revelation, maybe they listened to those things. But on the other hand, their problem is that they have left their first love. They may have heeded the warnings that Paul gave them, but sadly they've left their first love. We've uh, mentioned quite a bit now of the history of the church of Ephesus, but there's one little element that isn't explicitly in Scripture, but one that would really help us to understand things this morning. And that is, that as best we can tell, the Apostle John was at the church of Ephesus, uh, probably right before he was exiled to Patmos. So when he's writing to the church of Ephesus, in essence, he's writing to his own main church. Yes, he was given oversight over the rest of these churches. But as far as we know, this is his church. He knows it. And again, you would think here they have the apostle of love as their own pastor. The one who throughout the gospel of John, as we know, how many times did he speak of love? And throughout the, the letters in First John and the others, how many times did he speak of love? In fact, some people described his teaching. We have some, some extra-biblical accounts of the, the teaching of the Apostle John. And it was almost as if he had a one-track mind and people were bored with his constant teaching on love. And yet, somehow, that very church is the one singled out for their lovelessness. Well, we don't understand exactly how all these things are, but let's just go through the material, shall we, with these three points. I know your works. Second, you have left your first love. And third, repent. I know your works. You have left your first love. Repent. We begin with the first point. If we read in verse 2, I know your works. Now, first of all, we should see that this is one of the countless points of reference to Isaiah. The very last sermon, the very last chapter of Isaiah, you remember... Isaiah 66, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And we, the whole teaching on that, you see, was this is what qualified him. This is what set the stage for, them, for him to come in judgment. Precisely because he knew their works, that is why he was coming in judgment against them. He was coming with fire to judge the world. Now, it's also that, that qualification, that Element that enables the Lord to judge the churches. Not in the sense that he's going to come pour out his wrath on them, if they indeed are believers, but discerning in them what is wrong and correcting them. So it is he who declares, I know your works. Not just for Ephesus, but notice for each and every one of the churches. Also for Smyrna in Revelation 2.9, I know your works. And for Pergamos, I know your works. And for Thyatira, I know your works. Sardis, I know your works. Philadelphia, I know your works. And yes, Laodicea, in Revelation 3.15, I know your works. It's important for us to know that. And what does it imply? Well, if the thought has ever occurred to you, does Christ even know what I go through? Does he even know what I'm doing for him? Let me tell you, on the greatest of authority, seven times affirmation, yes, he does. 
There are some things that are not given to us. There are some things that remain a bit unclear, but this thing you ought to know, Christ knows exactly what you are going through. None of that has escaped his attention. And you will not lose your reward for it. He knows our works. Now the next question then is, how does he know our works? Well, the answer is in reference to the title that he gives himself. The reason why he knows so much about us is because he walks in our midst. He has not just sent us ahead to to do things. Yes, he's not here physically, but he told us in the Gospel of John that he's not going to leave us. He told us that he's going to be with us. And so he is. He walks among us. And that's a characteristic of a good shepherd, doesn't it? A good shepherd will walk with the flock to lead them. That enables a good shepherd to know his sheep. And that is precisely what he claimed to be able to do in John 10:14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own as the Father knows me. In the same way that the Father knows me, so I know my sheep. Well, how is it that the Father knows so much about the Son? Well, you see, there's no separation at all. They're intimately connected. I am in my Father, Father in me. They're not separated at all. They're together. And all that the the Father does, the Son, and the Son and the Father, and there's this wonderful co-location spiritually. Well, there is a perfect co-location spiritually between Christ and his church. He is walking with us. He doesn't have to guess what we did yesterday because he was there with us, you see. Reminds us of we the reason why we ought to watch the things that we do. Because we as Christians never do that alone. We who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we who are in union with Christ, we always do it with Christ with us. Well, he says he is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is the one who knows us because he walks with us. And even Peter, and the point at which he is most grieved because he's being called into question as to whether he really loves the Lord or not. You remember that. And what he has to say is, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Well, Jesus did know Peter. And Jesus did know the Ephesian church, and Jesus does know this church. He knows because he walks among us. He knows their works, and the works, in this case, in the church of Ephesus, the works were largely good. Specifically, he mentions your labor, your patience. These are things that are commanded. And you cannot bear those who are evil. That's elaborated then in verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. Those things have been given. In the, the, the epistles of John, you recall, there are specific instructions. Do not abide those who are evil. You as a church, you have to do something about it. If there are those in, in gross and public sin, you've got to excommunicate them. You've got to put them under church discipline. And if there are those who are teaching false, false teaching, you've got to do something about that. You can't just let that go on. And he says, that's what you guys have been doing. Well done. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. Wonderful. 
In verse 3, you have persevered and have patience and labored for my name's sake. How many times is it about patience? We've spoken about that before. Patience is extremely important and they have demonstrated their patience and have not become weary. Paul had to tell the church in Galatians, in Galatia, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And they had not grown weary. They had had patience. They continued on in their long-suffering. And you would think, what else could there possibly be here? I would love that to be said, all those things to be said of our church. There's one little exception. And that brings us to our second point. You have left your first love. In verse 4 it says, Nevertheless I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now that sort of hits us out of the blue. There's no preparation. We we're having not been in that situation. We didn't walk with the church in Ephesus. And we don't have the advantages of John, who is both there and no doubt remains in close communication with that church. And we wonder, where did this come from? Were there any hints? Or did it just spring out of nowhere? Well, I mentioned we have a plethora of information. Let's just look at the book of Ephesians, because there's a whole book written to this church. To see if we can detect any relevant material, any hints at all. Because you know that of all the churches, you can kind of group them. The, the, uh, the, the epistles, some of those churches are better than others. Galatia, they've got big problems. And Paul speaks to them in terms appropriate for that. Corinth, they've got some significant problems, not quite as deep-seated, but they're a mess. And Paul speaks to them in appropriate ways there. When you get to Ephesus, though... It would seem like they don't have many problems. It would seem like a fairly good church. But just take a closer look and see if you can notice anything at all. Notice, first of all, how the people are described in Ephesians 1.15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, that's a good thing. They have faith in Christ and they love God's people. Great. Wonderful. But notice the content of his request in chapter 3. Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his might toward his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, there was a detection of a slight problem area and that he's asking them that they'd be rooted and grounded in love for Christ. Because already maybe that was showing the beginning of an appearance. And that in order that they might truly know the fullness of the love of Christ for them, because those things work together, what stirs up our own love for Christ is precisely our knowledge of Christ's love for us. Maybe their problem wasn't so much in being dutiful. Maybe their problem wasn't so much in false doctrine. Their problem was they needed to be rooted and grounded in love for Christ. And indeed, think of Paul's parting words. I don't think that Paul's parting words are entirely random. In Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Maybe, just maybe, there are the hints of a beginning of a problem in the church of Ephesus. 
Maybe there are some who didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Now, I need not say that love was very much a theme in 1 John. That was so much of what we spoke of in 1 John. John, the apostle of love. How it must have grieved him then to have to write these words. The the Lord says, you're going to have to write things to these churches. Now, we can't guess whether whether John himself previously saw this problem himself. We don't know. But what we do know is that he was instructed to write this to the church, which we suspect was more or less speaking his own church. And it says that, John, these, these people, they're leaving their first love. How it must have grieved John to think about that. Somehow his own church was losing its love for Christ. Well, however it might have grieved John, it was a, much more, it was a matter of much more concern for the one who walks in the midst of the church's Christ. He's not writing these things to be mean. He's not writing these things out of ignorance. He's writing these things because he's seen it himself. They have left their first love. And that then brings us to our third point. Unless you repent. Because verse 5 is a call for them to repent. Reminded that the, the warnings, the pointing out of, of faults, this is not just this is not just some sort of self-flagellation exercise. That's never what this is about. In Scripture or these sermons, that is not what it's about. These warnings and these examinations happen in order that there might be some response. It is an element of God's grace to his people that these things are brought to their attention. Christ is a good shepherd. He didn't just leave them to their own way. He just doesn't look and say, well, there's another church I'm going to have to write off. They don't even have the most important thing right. They've got a lot of other things, but they've left their first love. No, he warns them, and he gives them an opportunity to repent. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So they, first of all, need to remember where they have fallen because there was a time when they had fervent love for Christ in that church. I think we can see that in the very first days of the church that there was a fervent love for Christ. Perhaps some of us can imagine that it's true not only in the case of a church as a whole but for ourselves individually. That when we first came to faith, perhaps, if we came out of the world, that there was such a great fervent love for Christ. Think about it. Remember it. Think of the way it was. Because I'm confident that the mere thought of that stirs up the love again. There is some limited parallel, I suppose, a limited parallel to human relationships. We think of those whom we love. And sometimes there are over a lifetime ebbing and flowing of those relationships. And you know, sometimes we look over, perhaps if we're married, look over old love letters or pictures or something. And we're reminded of the fervency of that love at the beginning. And it brings us to further love now. Well, that is what the Lord is telling us. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, because you once were there. You once had great love for me. Remember. And they need to repent then and do the first works. 
first. Of course, there are two senses to that word first. There's first in the sense of time. That, that applies because that's the way you used to be. First in the sense of time and also first in the sense of priority. And I think that's also the case here because he gave the long list of things that they're doing which are extremely important and he's not denying that at all. Those things are wonderful that the church was doing but there's one thing of greatest importance. And again, once again, we return to the, the Gospel of John. You think of uh, Martha and Mary. And what Martha was doing was not sinful. It was good that she was serving. A lot of the exhortation that we have in the New Testament has to do with getting God's people to serve when they're unwilling to do that. But there is something that's even more important than serving. That's why Jesus could say, Mary has chosen the better part and it won't be taken away from her. Because even more important than serving, however fervently, however patiently, however rightly, is our love for the Savior. And Mary was exhibiting that love. She wanted to be around Jesus and she wanted to hear from him. That's the first work. They needed to repent and do that first, most important work. And along with it does come a threat, a warning. Or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. And again, if we've been fed as only a steady diet of, of a sort of one-sided idea of who Christ is and the relationship he has with his people, that strikes us as strange. He's threatening them. Seems like the last thing they need at this point. If their problem is lack of love, why is he coming with them with a threat? Well, again, it's only because we have this false dichotomy between love and discipline, love and law and all the rest of it. These things are helps to, to love. God's law keeps us in love. And even, even in that sense, so does fear. You see, there is a right fear of God that we ought to have. And the point is to keep us in the way of love. You say, does not love, per, love cast out fear? Didn't we have a sermon about that in First John 14? There is no fear in love, but perfect f- love casts out fear, because love and fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So it seems like completely opposite. You're trying to get them to fear? Well, then that is going to move them away from love. But notice the context, the all-important context of that verse in the previous Previous verse, love has been perfected among us that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. As as he is, so are we in the world. And the point is, this is the other kind of fear. This is not the loving, respectful fear of their Lord we're talking about. It has the fear of, of unrepentant sinners on the day of judgment. And because these people have been brought to faith in Christ, they are not living in fear, servile, terrible fear of the day of judgment. And rather in this case, and look, these things came from the same pen. We know that they came from the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible did. But we didn't have less, humanly speaking, reason to wonder whether these things are in conflict. John hasn't forgotten about this. But it would seem that Christ is using a fearful threat to restore love. That's incidentally what good parents do. He's saying they need to repent and bring them back in the way of love. Well, there's a glimmer of hope in this. 
in the next verse. It says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And what's the connection here? Well, the connection, I think, is this, that hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans indicated that there was some love for Christ there. You see, love inevitably involves in some way its counterpart hate, you see. Those who love the Lord are going to hate those things that are opposed to the Lord. And hating those things which are opposed to the Lord, as in the deeds of the Nicolaitans, that's a sign of some remnant of love that is still there. It hasn't completely gone cold. It's not altogether extinguished. Precisely because they hate these deeds of the Nicolaitans, Christ can detect a glimmer of love for him. And the Lord wants to acknowledge it, hopeful son. Remember, this judgment is the one of, who, who sees everything. He knows everything about us. He walks around us. He walks in our midst, and he doesn't miss any of these things. So, yes, it's true that he has this one thing against them, but it doesn't mean that he's missed all the other things. He wants to acknowledge that hopeful thing. There is something to work with here. There's a glimmer of hope, but that's not going to be enough, is it? That isn't going to be enough. That isn't the resource that they need to be able to come back to where they came from. The resource that they need is Christ himself. The only way that they could repent, the only reason that they could do the first works is precisely because of the one who not only walks with the church, but who upholds the church. He holds them in his hand. Now consider the way that works. Consider that if, you know, we, we said that there's seven of these, and there are going to be, Lord willing, probably seven sermons on these things. And if at the end of all that, all you hear is Christ is at his church again. Christ is criticizing us again. And you don't understand that he's also giving resources for us. Then it's all in vain. You see, he begins with a resource. He begins with the reality that you're in my hand. All of my churches, you the church in Ephesus, all the people in that church and the church here, I'm holding you in my hand. That is a resource you need to avail yourself of if you're going to do the things that I'm calling you to do in repentance. It's just because of this. Because of my power. Because you can always call on me and you can always ask. And you can come to repentance and faith. And I'll enable you through the Holy Spirit, through my word and my spirit, I'll restore those things and I'll give you that love that you asked for. I'm holding you. You're not on your own. Well, to apply these things in, we need to remember that it's love. As I remember a somewhat crass um, campaign notice as they were trying to stay on message for a certain presidential campaign and and the thing that was taped on the walls is the economy stupid or something like that. Because you can get distracted, I guess. Um, I don't personally agree with that sentiment, but I guess they thought that they could get distracted from the main message and they need to be reminded that's what it's all about. And I think that we can get distracted, but we need to remember that what it's all about is love for Christ. Because that's always the problem. Our love or lack thereof, that's the problem. Our problem is not typically a lack 
of knowledge. Of course, we need to grow in our knowledge. We don't love, we, we, we have said it before. You cannot love that which you do not know. You must have knowledge in order to love Christ. You have to know him more. And your love for him will lead you to want to know him more. But our problem is not typically a mere lack of knowledge. Our problem is not merely often a matter of just being drawn away by the world. You know, it is always a situation that you are drawn to the thing that is most attractive to you. And given all things being equal, given to yourself over time, those are the things that you're going to go after. You can hold on only for so long, but it's the things that you find attractive that you're going to go after. And therefore, you have to find Christ supremely attractive. You have to know him as he truly is, most supremely lovely. And we have to recognize the love that he had for us. Because our love does not just come from... That's so much a problem of liberal religion in all of its forms is that we're just supposed to come up with love. Well, where is that love going to come from? Where is the fuel for it? We ourselves are fallen sinners. We live in a terrible fallen world. Where is that love going to come from? Naturally speaking, we're going to the Heidelberg Catechism with some of the children at NCS and... We speak of how naturally we hate God. If we naturally hate God, where is this love going to come? Well, the love that preempts our situation is the love of Christ for us. And that's why Paul was pointing to that issue in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what they needed. They needed to grasp. They needed to measure. You notice the, the physical dimensions there. Length and breadth and height. They needed to understand the fullness of Christ's love. for them. That's why it should function in the life of a saint. I, maybe it doesn't always do this, but it ought to function in your in your heart, that when you hear about the dying love of the Savior for you, when you hear of what he has done, when you hear about the sins that he's paid for, when you hear about the terrible eternity that he saved you from, when you hear how he walks among you and upholds you in his right hand, when you hear about those things, it ought to stir you up to love for Christ. It's all about love. But second, we should never forget our ongoing need to repent. It is absolutely true that there is a once and for all repentance and putting your faith into Christ as we come as new believers. That is true. And we don't need to do that again. But of course, we are always, we are maintaining our faith in Christ. That is not something, the question is never, did we at some point in the, in the past Put our faith in Christ. The question is, at this moment, are you trusting Christ? Some of us can remember the precise moment in which we put our faith in Christ, and maybe others cannot. Those who grew up in a Christian family, for instance. The question is, what about now? Do you now have your faith in Christ? Not that you have some faith that moves mountains, but merely do you have any faith in Christ? That's the point. 
And moreover, not is it that you repent one time in the long, distant future, but are you currently repenting of your sin? Because if we say that we have no sin, we make God to be a liar. He knows that we're sinners. The question is, are we repenting of that sin? And the very fact that in each, in, in all, almost all of these cases, we'll speak about an exception, they've got some, I've got something against you, he says. You've got these good things, but I've got something against you. And I want you to repent of that. It's only because he's expecting God's people, he's expecting his people to have to have this ongoing repentance from their sins. Let's not forget about our need to repent. Those things are intimately connected as well, by the way. Our repentance from things, as we, they've been pointed out to us, we repent from those things because, out of, and for a desire for greater love of Christ. Thirdly and finally, there is a promise to him who overcomes. Again, this is a repeated refrain throughout these letters. It says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To he who overcomes. Funny enough, in this letter, they've already had patience. They've already overcome, in some sense, false teaching. They seemingly have overcome a lot of other things. But the one thing they still needed to overcome was their own lovelessness. And there is a promise there for those who overcome. Those who overcome, I will give to eat from the tree of life. They will have this thing which was wrongly appropriated, sinfully used in the Garden of Eden, But for those who come in faith in Christ and who those are able then therefore to live in their life of faith and and repentance, Christ is going to give them eternal life. And that's a great promise to us.